turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians and to chapter 4. In my own congregation, I've been preaching from this epistle to the Ephesians. And I'll read just briefly here from this fourth chapter, Ephesians 4. We'll begin at verse 21 and read to verse 25. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away, lying, speak every man, truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And so, as we conclude that reading of God's word, we have the apostle, he's setting forth uh, the overarching duty of the believer, which is to put off the old man, that body of sin, that yet cleaves unto him, and to put on the new man. After that general exhortation, the apostle comes to something specific, and generally uh, we are impacted more by things that are specific than things that are general. He tells us to put off the old man, and then in verse 25, he tells us to put away lying. And then the thing to be put on is to speak every man truth with his neighbor. I want to uh, dwell with you then on that duty of putting away lying. And as I did with my own congregation in coming to these words, I believe that they're worthy of our uh, time and meditation to dwell upon them. There is so much in this spiritual mystery of mortifying sin uh, that we can only perceive by faith. The mystery of how sin is mortified by the Christian, it is, it's not learned by reason or sense, but only by faith. It's a gospel mystery. And so we need very much to be instructed in this. And what we see then in the Apostles' words, is that through his knowledge of and abiding in Christ by faith, the believer must put off and mortify all lying. It is the believer's duty to put away lying, but that duty does not come in a vacuum, does it? Verse 25 says, Wherefore putting away lying? That wherefore connects uh, with what has gone before. Namely, uh, that 
The believer has heard Christ in the gospel and by abiding in Christ has power to put off the old man and to put on the new. The believer has that duty by faith to mortify the sin and lust of lying. First of all, let's consider the explanation of this duty. What does it mean to put off lying? Secondly, the difficulty of the duty. And thirdly, the practice of this duty. How is it to be done? So first of all, the explanation of the duty. When God tells you to put away lying, what does that mean? Well, we need to identify certain things that are not lying. The word lying here could also be rendered falsehood. There are certain things that are not included in that prohibition. So, for instance, to uh, make a concealment for just reasons and to not disclose everything that we might know can't be justly counted as lying. And Samuel did this when he came uh, to anoint David. He didn't disclose everything about what he had come to do uh, to the elders of the city because he didn't owe them that information without speaking any untruth. He also didn't disclose everything that he knew. Also, to make some expression of what our sincere future intent is, um, suppose that we say, like Paul did to the Corinthians, he said, 2 Corinthians 1, that he intended to come and visit them, but his plans changed. And so we can't say Paul was a liar, because he had simply expressed his sincere intent and God's providence altered his plans. Also, allegories and and parables are means of conveying truth, whereas the letter uh, of what's contained in an allegory or a parable is uh, invented, yet the, the sense and the meaning behind it is truth. And so, One who tells in the service of truth, parables, like our Lord did, can't be said to be lying. And also certain ironies we have examples of in the word of God, as Elijah, who said to the priests of Baal, cry aloud for he's asleep. Maybe he's taken a journey. Elijah didn't believe that there was a Baal or that he was asleep or on a journey but he was speaking what was flatly contrary to the reality in order to prick and provoke uh, the priests of Baal. uh, Certain ironies, then, are not to be counted lying. But there are things, uh, indeed a large field of things, that God commands you uh, to put off. What is lying? It is falsehood. And there are two great categories of Lying. So the first is the mental lie. And that is when your tongue says what your heart believes and knows to be false. And we sang of that in Psalm 15. As he thinketh in his heart, so doth he truth express. In the godly man, in speaking truth, there is a perfect match between what he believes to be true and what he says with his mouth. Contrary to that was Jeremiah 9, which we also read. 
where we have um, that <clears throat> Jeremiah saying uh, that they flattered their neighbor with their mouth, contrary to what they believed in their own heart. God requires of you that your words would match your thoughts. After all, why is it that God has given you a tongue and the ability to speak? That is, so that you might give outward expression to your thoughts. God hasn't given to the beasts the ability to speak. Think of perhaps the dog, the family pet. He can't speak. And he also doesn't have, he's not a reasonable creature. He can't think as man can. And so for you to use your tongue to say, contrary to what you're truly thinking, this is falsehood. It is lying. It is what God forbids. But there's another category of lies as well. Next to the mental lie, where the tongue and the heart don't agree, there is the material lie. And in the material lie, uh, what the tongue says doesn't agree with things as they truly are. So suppose uh, we think as an easy example of someone who teaches a false religion to their children. Now, they're not guilty of the mental lie because they sincerely believe uh, that this false religion is in fact truth. They're not being phony but they are being sincerely wrong. They are sincerely lying and are forbidden by the law of God to say what they say. Why is that? Because sincerely thinking something is not a justification for speaking that which is in fact false. And you need to be careful here yourselves. Now it's true that in the common interactions of life we have Many interactions, suppose your spouse asks you, you know, where are the car keys? And you might say, well, the car keys, they're on the hook by the door. And you're saying what you sincerely believe to be true. Of course, what you're really saying is, to the best of my knowledge, the car keys are on the hook by the door. You're not guaranteeing that something hasn't happened outside of your knowledge, that one of the children hasn't come and moved them. And you wouldn't be lying if your intent is to say, to the best of my knowledge, this is where the car keys are. However, we do need to be careful because if you are ignorant of something and you uh, speak out of ignorance and what you say out of your ignorance proves to be false, you then, friend, are guilty of lying. And this is the very thing that Job was convicted about. In the end, when the Lord appeared to him, he said he had spoken, he had darkened counsel by words without knowledge. He had spoken that which he did not know. It is often pride uh, that leads us to want to have something to say, as if any gap or any silence needed to be filled up with our words, as if we were so great that we needed to fill up any space by saying something. But this can betray us friends, into lying. Whereas, oftentimes, the path of safety is to say, I simply don't know. And lest I be guilty of falsehood, I'm not going to attempt to say. There's the mental lie and the material lie. And God forbids these both to you. 
There are other categories of lies as well. There's the pernicious lie. That's obvious. A pernicious lie is told in order to harm someone. On the other hand, there is what's called the officious lie, sometimes known as the dutiful lie. However, this also is forbidden. Why is the officious lie forbidden? I told you this morning in regard to Rahab. I think it's a pity that there's been more focus upon her lie than upon the truth that she told. But nonetheless, I do believe that we need to maintain that it isn't right to lie, supposedly, in the service of charity. Because God in this text, without any limitation, he says, putting away lying, simply falsehood, it should not be spoken. Because falsehood is always contrary uh, to the character of a God of truth. God, who is a God of truth, does not need your lie in order to advance his purposes. And what's evil in its own nature, and lying is evil in its nature, can't be made good by uh, whatever purpose you might attach to that evil thing. For instance, we would never think of suggesting, well, people over here don't have Bibles, so let's steal someone else's goods in order to have money to buy them Bibles. We wouldn't dream of justifying theft by a supposed good end nor should we dream of justifying lying by our own supposed good ends. David seemed to have, perhaps, good ends in lying to Agag, keeping on the low what he was actually doing and saying that he was raiding against Judah, but what trouble he got in uh, and how close he came uh, to shedding the blood of his own people by being caught and ensnared by his lies. What does God want you to put off? Lying. All categories of lying. Mental and material lies. Pernicious and officious lies. He says, put it off. Put it away. Put it off. That lying thing. Put it off. Not simply put off the consequences of it. Not simply out of fear of man, but in the fear of God. Put off all Lying, Put off the act of lying and go deeper than that as well. Because putting off the old man uh, means, as we see in this passage, it means putting off not only the acts of the old man, but also his lusts. Verse 22. Put off the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. God is calling you to hack away at the root of the old man, to lay the axe to the root of the tree. If there were uh, a dam that was breaching, that can be very dangerous and disastrous, of course. But if you were to go up to the dam that's in danger of breaching and you are simply to throw sandbags at it to attempt to make the dam stronger or higher or to keep some trickle of water from continuing to run over the dam. Uh, That's not enough. God calls you not simply to mortify or to put away this and that act of lying, but to go behind the dam and to trace 
the water all the way up to its spring and then to wither and dry up the spring itself until there's no more water, no more deceitful lusts. God tells you uh, to carry out an all-out warfare against lying. Put it away from your tongue. Put it away from your mind so that your mind doesn't entertain lying, but that your mind is saturated with truth and rejoices with the truth. Put it away with the affections, hate and abhor lying. We were singing of that. God hates and abhors the bloody and deceitful man. Hate that lying old man. Hate him. Kill him. Put him off. This is what God is calling you to do. So far, I've only been telling you the explanation of the duty. What it is that God calls you to do. But also we need to consider the difficulty of this duty. It is not something that is simple or easy uh, to check off a box concerning. Why is it that the light of nature is ever so clear on this point? Why is it Uh, That if we go into the streets and we start to interview people and we ask them, do you believe that lying is wrong? They would say, perhaps they perhaps they wouldn't be as strict as what I've laid out to you. They might say, well, I think there are some circumstances when it's permissible. They might say, but in the main, they would say, yes, it's an obligation and a duty to tell the truth and not to tell a lie. Anyone typically that we meet would be offended to be branded as a liar. That's a name they would refuse. They would say, I, I'm not a liar. I, or, but yet, while people, by the light of nature, because we've been made by a God of truth, they understand that lying is wrong. To an extent, they understand that. But yet, everyone lies. Just think about how our society runs. Think about how it is that you see an advertisement and you immediately think, well, where's the fine print? You hear something that's proclaimed to you through news outlets and so on, and you're suspicious about it. I need to check that. How can I really know? I can't trust people, you think. There, is, there are half-truths and flatteries and uh, all, all manner of play-acting. This is how... The world runs while all the time saying, lying is wrong. I'm not a liar. So this is showing us, isn't it? That to put off lying, this can only be done by a life from above. This can only be done by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Most professed Christians, in fact, uh, tend to be ignorant of how much work they have to do in this area. And so here Paul comes and he's writing to these Ephesians and he tells them in the opening chapters, he lays out for them the eternal love of God for them in predestination. He tells them of the ultimate purpose towards which the will of God is... Uh, intended 
that they might be holy and blameless before God. He speaks to them as saints. At these Ephesians, they had made a break with their pagan past. They had taken their valuable magic scrolls. They had burned them up. These were people who were converted. But yet, Paul comes to these people that he regards as saints and as begotten again and quickened and raised with Jesus Christ. And he says, now let me tell you, here's something you need to keep on doing. Here is a work that God has for you, which is to put away lying. And if you were to respond to the word of God at this point, and if you were to say, well, there might be other things that I need to work on, but not this. I have this conquered. I'm pretty much an honest person. People pride themselves on that, don't they? They say, you know, whatever other faults I might have, I'm an honest person. However, friend, if you are thinking this evening, someone else may need to work on this, but I've conquered it. I'm an honest person. There's no more lying for me to put away. Let me tell you, friend, that you are exemplifying the very fact that you have a strong lying lust. Because if you say, I'm a Christian, no more work for me to do in putting away lying, you are saying the opposite of what God says. And so let's bring it into the court of conscience. Here's someone who might say, I have no more work to do in this area. God says, you have work to do in this area. Put away lying. Who's telling the truth? God is telling the truth. And the very man who says, I don't have a problem with lying, is lying in that very thing. He's speaking what is false. He is deceiving himself. Let me show you why. There are many strong lusts that still dwell within. And that's why... The apostle, he tells us of the new man. He tells us that there's been a wonderful creation by the spirit of grace. A new nature has been formed within the believer. But yet dwelling next to that new man is the old man. And he's called a man because a man has all his parts and faculties. The old man has all... The principle of every sin is there in that old man. And so there are many lusts uh, that can betray the believer into lying at any moment. Pride will betray the believer into lying by vainglorious exaggeration when he is telling a story to draw just that little bit more of attention to himself. The believer can be betrayed into lying by his covetousness. What a base thing that is to be greedy, to heap up the the things of clay, the things of this earth unto ourselves. But that covetous lust will betray you into lying. Because you'll be going to make a deal. You'll be bargaining or buying something. 
And you'll make, you'll find that you make this little comment, which is intended to make you seem as if you're poor, a little bit poorer than you actually are, to move the person who's selling, to lower the price. And then you've engaged in lying through covetousness. As it were, the covetous lust has stirred up the lying lust, and they've conspired together, and you've contracted guilt before a holy God, a God of truth. The angry lust can also betray you into lying in your heat, in a conflict. You raise yourself up against another. And in order to beat them down, you overreach the mark of truth. You exaggerate something that they've done or failed to do. And in your anger, you have committed lying. People lie through fear. The fear of man bringeth a snare. It was through fear that Sarah uh, engaged in lying when she was in the tent. She heard the angel of the Lord say that about the time of life that she would bring forth a son. And she laughed, but she denied. She was afraid and she denied. And she said, I did not laugh. She attempted to hide behind the screen of a lie. Fear will betray you into lying. Vanity of mind will betray you into lying, idle words that are spoken to no purpose. What if God lets you keep walking down that path? If you're speaking vanity and words that have no purpose, you may find before you know it that you've spoken something that's been outright false. Enmity will betray you into lying in an attempt to blacken the name of someone whom you hate. Man-pleasing will betray you into lying. The prophet Hosea, in Hosea chapter 7, he, he spoke of those. Hosea 7 and verse 3, They make the king glad with their wickedness, and the princes with their lies. What a temptation there is, especially towards someone who has power and can influence us and can either benefit us or harm us, to tell them what they want to hear or what we think they want to hear, to make princes glad with lies. Don't think you're here tonight and suppose you're a sincere believer in our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't think that you're past the danger of this. You're in danger at every moment of veering into outright lying. And this lying lust, God takes aim at it first of all. Isn't that interesting? Where the apostle here in Ephesians 4, he tells us in general that you need to put off the old man and you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man. And the first thing that he puts in the target 
of the arrow of truth is lying. And that's for this reason, that the lying lust is like a gatekeeper to the castle of sin. The lying lust defends every other lust. The lying lust seeks to blind your eyes and it whispers about all the other lusts. It says, you know, that's only a small one. Or others do that too. Or this won't harm my peace very much. It won't wound my communion with God if I entertain and retain this particular lust. That's a lie. And that's the lying lust protecting the other lusts. Oh, isn't it true? What Jeremiah said, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The tongue is man's glory, but yet the tongue has become accustomed to becoming the mouthpiece of the old man. Think of how much work we have to do here. James says, the tongue is a fire. So you have a fire to put out. James says that the tongue is a world of iniquity. So you have a world to conquer in putting off of lying. James says that the tongue is an unruly evil. And that means you have a work to do that is similar to breaking in a beast and domesticating it and subduing it, that unruly tongue of yours. James says that the tongue is a deadly poison that you're carrying around with you. Just imagine you had in your pocket some, well, God forbid, but you know, you had some deadly poison, cyanide or something that you knew was capable of killing people. You would say, I need to get rid of this. I need to find some way to burn it in the fire. I need to destroy it. But you carry more closely than you carry what is in your pocket, that lying lust. It's dangerous to people. It is a deadly poison and you need to seek to get it healed. You need to seek that as the prophet cast in the the salt into the spring uh, whose waters were deadly, you need to seek to get that deadly lying lust healed. Man's lying lust is an evil thing. And I'm speaking this evening uh, to the believer. But what if you're here and you've never known the saving Christ in power, if you're not yet indwelt by His Holy Spirit, then you need to know that this is this duty, all of it is impossible to you until you first flee unto Jesus Christ. You see, if you're unconverted this evening, you need to make sure that you don't misapply what you've been hearing and saying, well, if I can mortify and put off lying, then perhaps then I'll become acceptable to God. But no, it's the other way. You need to know that there is an open road that the Lord has set before you in His gospel, and you are to come to God 
on Jesus Christ, who is that road and that open way. The way is open to you. Come unto God by Christ and then receive from him as a free gift, his Holy Spirit. Then you'll be able to do this. It's a work that's impossible to the natural man. We've considered an explanation of this duty of putting away lying. We've considered the difficulty of this duty of putting away lying. But then, thirdly, we need to consider this evening the practice of this duty of putting away lying. How is it that the believer does this of putting away lying? And to that, for that purpose, I want to draw your attention to a text that we read in Romans 6. And that is really a central passage about how the believer can mortify sin and lust. Romans 6 and verse 6 in particular. Knowing this, the whole key to the believer successfully mortifying sin, including the lust of lying, comes from knowing something. And how does the believer know what he needs to know? He knows what he needs to know by the gospel. It is not enough to simply have the light of nature and to have a work of the law whereby one is convinced, to an extent at least, that lying is sinful. We need to know another kind of truth that can only be learned by God revealing it to us in his gospel, by those that have preached it to us, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is only through receiving that gospel word in faith, knowing this, uh, that the believer has power to overcome sin. What is the content of what the believer knows in order to overcome sin? Notice that there is reference to a judgment that is very severe. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. The word him, that's in italics, telling us that it's not so much explicitly found as clearly implied in the original. But it is clearly implied that there's reference here to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The old man is crucified with him, co-crucified together with Christ. In order to mortify the lying lust, you need to know that Jesus Christ was crucified. And you need to know that the old man was not crucified in him. It doesn't say that. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified in him, not in him. Was there any inherent, was there any sin, was there any lust inherent in our Lord Jesus Christ? No, but it was rather imputed to him. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. We need to, in order to overcome sin, the first thing that we need is to have a sight by faith of Jesus Christ, the innocent one, 
bruised for our transgressions. We know, as Isaiah says, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He that had an innocent mouth and a pure and truthful heart, he is the one who was crucified. And that tells us that a holy God hates lying. But it also tells us, doesn't it, that in this severe judgment in which God spared not His Son, that He bore the curse and the damnation that was due to His people for their sins. So that our old man is crucified with Him, with Him. That when Christ was crucified, that the penalty and curse that was due to us under the law as a covenant of works, that it was worked off, sweated off, toiled off by our Lord Jesus Christ through the travail of His soul. Now the law has no more power to condemn the Christian has no more power. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. The believer is not anymore cut off from the life of God through the penalty and curse of his sin. So that now the old man to be handed over to sin, that was a penalty for the first sin of Adam. But now... The believer in Christ and through his crucifixion is freed from the curse and penalty of that covenant of works. You need to think of that, the severe judgment that fell upon Christ. There was a severe judgment on Christ, but there is a protracted struggle within the believer. Because it says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That is, that the old man is in a state of crucifixion. And what is crucifixion? But a lingering and painful death. In one sense... We recognize that the Christian is not under the dominion of sin, but this does not mean that he has no more struggle with sin. And this is well, this is, uh, it is vividly expressed by the Apostle when he's telling us that the old man is crucified. The old man is there, but he is on the cross. You need to understand that the old man, just like just like a crucified man. Uh, Think of what happens when a man is crucified. He screams. He's in tremendous pain. A man who's being crucified, he gasps for breath. A man who's being crucified, he says, let me down. That's exactly what your lusts will do to you. They will gasp. They will cry. 
they will say, you can't do this to me. You can't do this to me. You've got to let me breathe. You've got to feed me. You've got to let me move. But you need to look your lusts in the face and say, I know that the old man is crucified. Stay upon that cross, O old man, and let your life gasp away and bleed out. Say to your lusts, you may cry and gasp, but I know that you will wither and weaken just like my Savior was crucified under the hot sun until his strength was dried up like a pot shirt, until his innocent and truth-telling tongue clave unto his jaws, and he was brought to the dust of death As surely as it was so, you, O old man, you must stay and wither. If the old man says, I thirst, feed me, give me some opportunity to live and move and speak, refresh me. I've been with you for so long. If your lusts say, let me live, I thirst. You are to say to the old man, here is some vinegar for you to drink. You need to know that your old man is crucified. Scriptures tell us of a protracted struggle. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. They tell us of an eventual destruction. Our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. This is the end that will be accomplished. It will be accomplished in part at death. Not till then is the the believer freed from the presence of that body of sin. But think of that. At death, then the body of sin is destroyed. Indeed, the very body uh, whose members have been offered and presented to sin as instruments of unrighteousness shall be laid in the grave and shall consume away. The worm shall consume the body that was used in the service of sin. And even in that, there is something in which, though solemnly, the believer can rejoice that that body of sin shall be destroyed. That tongue shall no more tell any lie. But then there is more. Then there is the resurrection. Then the believer's natural body 
That body, yes, that was used in the service of sin many times, shall be raised up even with Christ. And now shall be raised incorruptible and a spiritual body with no more sin at work in its members. Then shall the believer in the presence of God sing unto the Lord with a mouth free of guile. Think of that. A choir of clean mouthed saints praising the Lord perpetually. This will happen. The body of sin shall be destroyed. That is the eventual and the ultimate thing. But this verse also tells us of something that is presently true. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Here's what you need to know, believer. That Christ has been crucified. He is born. He has carried away the curse and penalty of your sin under the covenant of works so that you can no more be bound over unto death and sin. As a result of that, your old man is still with you, but is in a state of crucifixion, dying a lingering death. Make sure that you don't feed the old man. Know that he's crucified. Don't pity the lusts of the flesh. Don't feed them in the expectation that the old man and body of sin will one day day be totally destroyed and now in the present time. Henceforth, from this moment, then the believer, what? Does not serve sin. Notice that there's a difference between committing sin and serving sin. At times the believer does commit sin, but the believer never serves sin. Serving relates to what one's master is. And so at times the Christian sins. It's his greatest grief that he does so, that sin still deceives him and overtakes him, but he hates it with all his heart. And he knows that he serves another master, Christ, who is my Redeemer, who has not only a right over me as the eternal Son of God, who has made me, but who has purchased me to be his own possession by dying for me and rising up from the grave. He is Lord over me and over all my members, and I serve him. I do not serve sin. The unbeliever may at times hold back from committing certain sins. An unbeliever can, through mere slavish fear of penalties and consequences for sin, through mere fear of man and social shame, can at times be restrained from committing particular sins and not be as bad as he could be 
in his practice. But yet, all the while that he's restrained, he still loves sin and wishes that he could sin without limitation. But the believer is different. He doesn't serve sin. He hates it and wars against it. And now, believer, you need to use means so that henceforth you not serve sin. And particularly, you need to make use of the word of God. You need to put off lying and you need to put on truth-telling. And I'm only... That's the second part, of course, of Ephesians 4.25, which we're only glancing at very briefly uh, this evening, which deserves its own sermon, really. But the believer who... Uh, to whom he knows his old man to be crucified. He does not serve sin. And what does he do now? He, he reads the word of God uh, so that his mind does not remain vain with light and frothy, foolish things, so that he's not the empty-headed fool. He digests the word of God. He takes in as much of the word of God as he can. He chews upon that word as it were, chewing the cud, meditating upon the word of God. He's like the clean animals of the Old Testament. who had, They had to have a cloven hoof and they had to chew the cud. The Christian, as it were, he chews the cud of the word. He brings back to his mind what he has read and heard in order to digest it and to make it sink into his bones. Uh, The believer, he fills up himself uh, with the word of truth by coming unto preaching with hunger and thirst. He seeks to have the word of Christ dwelling in him richly by by psalm singing, these spiritual songs of Christ. He presses them close to his heart. He sings them through the day. He watches by means of the word. The young man keeps his way pure uh, by guarding it according to the word of God. The believer uses means uh, to walk at liberty from this lying lust. Well, here, uh, dear friends, here is a, a, a miracle of the grace of God that we've been considering. Here is something that the believer does that no natural man was ever able to do. He puts away, in some sense, the the kingpin of lusts, this first lust that God takes aim at. Of all things in the old man, he first points at this, put away lying. This is no easy thing, but it is... The Christian's continual exercise. The Christian has joy as he, through faith, looks unto a crucified Savior, obtains strength, mortifies this sin, and puts on the contrary grace of telling the truth. May that experience be yours. May you have not just the notion of these things, but the experience and practice of them. Amen. And let's stand then and pray. O Lord, our God and our